While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. talk real quick i don't i don't have negative feelings towards feet on a regular basis but maybe that's just because i don't look at up close pictures of toes enough i'm not there are there are several human appendages and i think feet are definitely (laughs) one how many of how many appendages feet feet are one i think um genitalia i would argue is another that are built let's let's say they are built with function in mind and not not form so much <laughs> okay like if you just look at a picture of feet and, and you know accepting i think there are exceptions to this rule but mostly like feet are just these weird planks with little planks coming off of them and they help you stand up and they're really good at that but i wouldn't want to like look at a picture of one for the rest of my life what would you look at a picture at of for the rest of your life? Um, like a good sandwich, like good a good a good up close picture of chicken fingers. Oh man, <laughs> we are on. Okay, Laura and I are on the hunt for the perfect chicken fingers. She has in her like mind's taste buds this particular. <laughs> chicken finger breading that we just can't find like it's that classic like kind of dry kind of too much of it breading Mm -hmm. that you get from like a pizza joint or you know an italian joint sure they were clearly frozen and they are kind of (sighs) crispy but they're the ones that are in the pictures and no one has those (laughs) They have their own crap chick fingers. Well, like we have a Popeyes down the street, and Susanna, when she's like jonesing for some fries and some chicken fingers, which she calls chicken tenders, I think, because it makes her feel less like a twelve-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> when you go into a Popeyes and you look at like their marquee thing where they like list all the value meals, like everything is supposed to be different ostensibly, but. It all looks the same because it's all just varieties it's, on fried chicken. They have a two-toned menu. Yeah, it's like brown and different brown. Well, because it's it's fried and potatoes. That's <laughs> the two things they have. Those are the two colors. Are, the, are those how big of a box of Crayolas do you have to get to get the <laughs> fried and, and and fried chicken crayons? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. And my name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. Did you just like forget your name? I was thinking about fried chicken. Um, <laughs> okay. it's, we're recording this late at night and I'm very hungry. And uh, so if I kind of get a little lightheaded in the middle of the show, that's why. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there you go. So so this is a this is a podcast about books. And I, I feel like it's been a while since we've given our 
our spiel. So the the deal with the show and the, the deal since the beginning has been we've got books that we've wanted to read for a long time, but you know, for one reason or another, we just never got around to it. And we think that lots of lots of you out there are in the same boat a lot of the time. So every week one of us reads a book and describes it to the other one of us. Um, along with some discussion about its author and its relevant themes and obviously um, fish pedicures, you know, as the need arises. And so, chicken so fingers. So And chicken fingers. So that's that's pretty much our deal. That's basically everybody. it. I mean, yeah. Some of the books are recommended to us. I've, I'm slowly but surely kind of working through books that people have bought for me because <laughs> uh, I've gotten a number of books as gifts over mm-hmm. the years. And this show is a really good opportunity to read all of those. Yeah. So uh, which one of those did you tackle this week? I read a book called In the Woods by Tana French. Now, this is distinct from Into the Woods, the super annoying musical. Is that correct? It is distinct from Into the Woods, a widely respected and well-regarded musical. Okay. you sa- I think you said annoying wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a regional thing. I think thing. it must be a regional title. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Phil. I'm from. Well, not from Philadelphia, but I'm from the Philly area. That's we say Wooder, and we say uh, uh, widely respected respects. and well regarded <laughs> instead of annoying. That's how it goes. So, talking about regional dialects, this book takes place in Ireland. Okay, um, and we we'll talk about the author in just a hot second, uh, but. I was wondering what that I knew it was an American author and it doesn't read it it kind of reads in a, in an American voice um and I was very quickly surprised and pleased to find that most of the dialogue in the book is not in some like weird brogue Oh man like, that's the worst like kind and of I, I've encountered that mostly when I'm playing video games actually oh, is like they're trying to imitate some regional dialect and it's just like it's the worst thing ever because they pick half a dozen stock phrases or accents or something that's supposed to be indicative of how a certain type of person talks and you see them over and over and over again and it's it's not to say that they're the worst (laughs) it's not to say that this book doesn't feel like it's set in ireland and, and it's not to say that this book uh doesn't occasionally use um idioms and and other speech patterns and and words that definitely get used in Ireland um but my fear whenever I'm I'm reading something like that is that it's going to get it's going to get put in some dialect that is actually way harder to read uh when it's not pronounced out loud and and mm-hmm. you just won't enjoy it yeah um, so it wasn't like that like did they do any of that at all or like what are the what are the indicators like what what places this story I guess is what I'm asking. Well, that's a good question. It's set in a small town named Knocknery, which is just outside Dublin. And this town was kind of built as a potential estate. They refer to it as the estate. So there's all of these kind of cookie-cutter suburban homes um, that were built in the 70s, I think, 70s, 80s. And it's in... uh, it's 20 years later, so I think it's in the it's current day now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set in this kind of small, sleepy Irish town that is dealing with its history because there's also there there's also an archaeological site 
on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something very Irish about, especially in this time period, kind of dealing with its stature as a as a country and you know is it kind of dwelling in the past or is it you know it's always kind of been lingering behind with regards to um some culture and in the same way that you you like stereotypically see american things catch on in europe Mm -hmm. you know 20 years behind where they might um their the vision of the of the 70s and 80s that you kind of get in this book that was 20 events prior to the events in the book uh is it feels like a mix of the American eighties and the American like fifties or sixties. <laughs> like it's like set in this, <laughs> in this kind of idyllic suburban town, but at least a couple of the teenagers have like Metallica t-shirts, you know, and are playing like LCD games. So you get elements of like the art and, and popular culture that have migrated over. It sounds like, but some of the morals and like the deeper cultural stuff, Yes. Is still running a little bit behind, is what you're saying. Yes. And it's it's very much aware that it's a small town. There's there's a whole big to do about whether or not they're gonna build this motorway through it. So the the impending oh, motorway. Yeah, I know. For it's motorists. <laughs> yeah. Um it's in the impending modernity and what that will do to the land it crosses through is kind of a theme. Um it it's the it's the other side of the coin in this book, which is dealing with your past. Uh, okay. Which feels very Irish to me. So, okay, which do you want to tell me about first? Do you want to talk about Tana French a little bit first, or would you like to give me, like, the the high-level plot synopsis stuff oh, first? Let's get Tana out of the way. Um, I don't know if we're pronouncing <laughs> that real quick. Like, I don't know if we're saying that right. Okay. Could be Tana, could be Tana. I just, I just went for it, so. <laughs> it's fine. Let's embrace it. Um... I don't know a lot about her. <laughs> She's uh, a contemporary writer. Uh, this book was published in 2007. And she's also apparently an actress and uh, was born in America and then has lived in Ireland, Italy, the United States, and Malawi. Hmm. Attended college in Dublin. So that kind of gives you her frame of reference for the book. And has lived in Dublin uh, since 1990. So when I was initially kind of starting the book, being like, why did this American author set this book in, in Ireland and feel like she have has a sense of ownership over this place? It's because uh, she's been there for like 20 years. she's been there for a good long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons that when I was picking this book off the shelf that I kind of I took note of it is that there's all sorts of um like high regards on the book cover that point to it being an award-winning first novel like four or five different awards for first novel okay um it won the edgar award the anthony award the mccavity award and the barry award <laughs> i like how most of these awards are just a dude's name yeah and I, it makes me think that like her Little Hamlet has just book awards and like Barry picks his favorite book and that book wins the Barry Award. Oh, and this one's Edgar's. It's basically just the staff pick section of a bookstore, but they give you certificates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's not the case. 
Um, uh, so I, I, and it's kind of interesting and maybe it's a, a tangent, but, um, when we do read more contemporary authors for the show, it's just, it's funny how being alive like a hundred years ago and ha- having a bunch of scholars dissect your life makes for a lot like a lot better conversation because <laughs> a lot of people have examined everything you've done and developed a lot of opinions about it. But that's usually not true for living, living authors, or at least not people who have risen to prominence in like the last decade or so. Yeah. Within the last decade. I mean, it's, it is kind of interesting that for our purposes that, yeah, this book only came out seven years ago and it's her, it's her debut book. She won four awards. <laughs> Yeah, and it looks um, like she's she's written four books since then. And from what I found when you know when I was doing a little bit of research, is it doesn't look like they're direct sequels necessarily, but the follow up books do you take place in the same universe. Like usually they'll it it looks like they'll follow a character from in the woods around. That's what I I didn't read that about the later books but i did read that about her follow-up book the likeness which is apparently about the lead female character from in the woods um so yeah and she does reference um stephen king at least once in the book like by name like the main character refers to this town as sort of one of those sleepy uh Stephen King like towns sure and yeah he he definitely does that as he comes back to that that well and i always wonder you know, of course, now it's deliberate now that everybody's kind of noticed it. But I wonder, like, I think for some of these universes, like, uh, geez, what's the Kevin Smith one? Like the. Oh, stop it. Uh, the fact God. that that's even a universe. Stop it. I know. But I feel like the fact that that's universe, it's just it happened accidentally because he made a bunch of movies that didn't directly contradict each other and so he just said that they were set in the same universe like that's i wonder if that's what what happens with this kind of stuff well and when you when you live in a world of wikis right where everything can be kind of assembled into this cross-referenced database Mm -hmm. then the idea of your your intellectual property being a like a coherent event and tapestry or whatever you want to call it that is it's sellable i don't know what do you Mm -hmm. i don't know Um, okay so i i keep sidetracking us so i guess it's time to get into the book now yeah i don't want to give a full rundown of the plot the book is a crime psychological mystery novel um so i wanted i try want to give a a lot of the setup and not spoil too much because i really do I really did enjoy this book. I actually, I it's been a really really busy past couple of weeks for me, and I've spent at least a good forty five minutes most nights up extra reading because um, mm-hmm. it was hard not to. Not only did I want to finish it for the show, but I also was like, I need to know what happens. <laughs> so here's the setup. Here's the setup for Inwoods. Okay. Um, twenty years ago from the events of the book, which take place in the modern day. There was a murder in the small, uh, well, two not a murder necessarily, we don't know. Two kids went missing in the woods of Knocknaree, Ireland, County Dublin. Mm-hmm. And the one kid who survived, there were three of them, they were 12, is named uh, Adam Robert Ryan. And so he, but he is 
basically blacked out everything that happened up until that point. He has no idea what happened to him. He was discovered like up against a tree with bloody shoes and his shirt all ripped up and his two friends had disappeared. So he doesn't know what happens and they send him away to boarding school and he kind of lives this solitary life through school, picks up one or two friends and then becomes a detective in what they call the murder squad, <laughs> which is just wor- homicide. <laughs> okay. Um, there's even a, a note in the squad. back of the book from Tana French. Uh, it's like an author's note where she's like, yes, I understand. Uh, I took some liberties with the workings of the Irish police force. <laughs> the most obvious example being that there is no murder squad. <laughs> It's just an amalgamation of a couple different squads. You and know, that's my that's my favorite punk rock band is the Murder Squad. <laughs> Actually, what is is it? No, it's in the woods. I think in the woods might share a name with a defunct like Scandinavian metal band. Of course, I th- I think <laughs> if if anything on earth has a name, I believe there is a Scandinavian metal band that's been named for it. Like, I, I think that's just how Scandinavian metal bands work. And one, and one more tangent real quick. I was reading an article a couple weeks ago about, like, why all the metal comes out of Scandinavia. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like, okay, are you gonna? Are you just going to tell me that you read this and it was weird, or are you going to try no, and break it, was it weird down? They were, trying to, they were trying to break down different genres, like new genres of metal, and, like, black metal versus scream metal versus Man. core metal i know we try to be like inclusive and understanding and if we get emails about this like i will totally backtrack but i think the people who know all the metal subgenres are like the worst kind <laughs> of nerd and i say this as somebody who will like argue about star trek continuity with you like i i just can't get in the mindset of people who can tell the difference. I don't know. Maybe just because I get so scared of it, I turn most of it off. That's probably it. It's like, why is this guy yelling at me? Yeah, I yeah, I can't <laughs> listen to the yelling metal. Anyway, uh, so we're in Ireland in this book, and Rob Ryan, main character, he becomes a murder detective. He works his way up. And he ends up you know, working with his partner, Cassie, for a good long time. And there's a lot of talk about how they both kind of rose through the ranks rather quickly. It's remarkable for a woman to be on this squad. Uh, She's often described as kind of a bit of a tomboy and uh, doesn't take no guff kind of thing, but she's also, they become fast friends and everyone speculates that they might be sleeping together or in a relationship and they totally aren't. Uh, And the book takes great pains to kind of make that clear to you. I think for as long as as it can, I think I found that very refreshing. Um, even if at a certain point it does feel like the main character is protesting a little too much, if you know what I mean. <laughs> sure. Um, it is told from his perspective, which I think is is important as well. Uh, so of course they end up getting assigned to the murder of a twelve year old girl named Katie Devlin uh, in the town where. Rob grew up where his friends went missing, where he was discovered, uh, you know, blacked out and, you know, with bloody shoes. And, of course, he changed his name. He started going by his middle name. And 
if anyone working on the police force had us like suspected that he was that kid, they could obviously look it up and find out. But he has done a pretty decent job of, of not telling anyone in his life that that is the case. Uh, his partner knows, and that's about it um, in terms of the story. So he is assigned to this case, and he can't resist uh, working on it. Part of it is they think it might be linked to the original case because, you know, just it it's, it would be weird for there to be, a, like, multiple murderers living in the, in the village. <laughs> they say that at one point. <laughs> um, the fact that it was a kid of the same age. They find a hair clip uh, near the body that was uh, matched a f- one from a photo of the girl who disappeared 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all these implied links between the two murders or the two crimes because you don't necessarily ever find out. Um, that's that's kind of left up to uh, to the mystery of it. And I think the book actually does a really good job of this dual mystery right because rob doesn't even know what happened to him when he was 12 and Mm -hmm. he's struggling to find out what happened to this girl and he's kind of hoping that working on this case well he's fearing and hoping that working on this case will kind of uh unpack that in his mind so then kind of where it goes from there is that the main suspects involve uh the immediate family of the girl uh they involve folks who are working on this archaeological dig site where because they're building the motorway, um, they have to hurry up and excavate all of these artifacts, these like pre, pre-Beowulf artifacts, basically, um, <laughs> from the area. And there's suspicion that maybe one of those guys did it because the the girl was found on a sacrificial stone on the dig site and there's actually a part where they have to like the t- the two detectives rob and cassie make up like a all the reasons why it wasn't satanists mm-hmm. so that they can tell their boss to say that to the press <laughs> uh and then it goes from there into you know going after the individual suspects was it her father was it her sister was it uh, a younger guy on the archaeological dig? Was it someone who hated her father because her father's been trying to stop the building of this motorway? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, over, over the course of the book, Rob is hoping that, um, you know, as he uncovers more details, he's simultaneously hoping that he can help and and crack the case with something coming to him in his memory, but he's also terribly worried that it's uh, gonna affect him negatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of like the overall setup of the book. I can go into more detail, but there's plenty of plot twists. Sure. Um, so I mean, a lot of these murder mystery books or like who done it kind of books are. I mean, they're all about what is happening. And and that's not the case with a lot of the, I guess, the quote unquote classic literature that we read, like in those stories. And I mean, we ran into this just last week with the short stories that I read. Um, you get into like the themes and the symbolism and stuff like having like kind of being the point of the story mm-hmm. more so than like the 
the recounting of events. And so, so is there anything like you said, you like this book a lot. Is there, is there stuff under the surface here or are you just kind of, um, you know, reading through to get to what's next. So you learn what happens. I think why I'm turning each page is to get to what happens next. Uh, I think there's one or two things later in the book. Uh, I, I won't tell you who, but when they find out what happened, uh, the perpetrator does a little bit of monologuing <laughs> okay. towards the end, which mm-hmm. they try to excuse and kind of justify with, with, you know, assessing that person but it does feel a little on the nose um it is it is a classic mystery first i think some of the thematic things that i i i enjoyed or felt it handled pretty well are this relationship to who you were or or who you've become and the this kind of really literal digging up of the past i love that it's set with this whole archaeological dig as the background to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is the site of the murder. They kind of, they do a lot. It's really interesting how, how easily they narrow down that it took place in this town and, and on that, uh, and on that site because it was, they, not only was she found like with two wounds on her head, but there was also, um, someone tried to make it look like it was sexual, but they used a tool to do it rather than actually commit that act. Sure. Um, and so that one of the, they used a tool from the dig. So it kind of points to that and it kind of steers them away from it being anyone outside the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the fact that it's an archeological dig is pretty, it's not a subtle, but I think it's handled subtly metaphor for what not for what Rob is doing specifically. He's digging up his He's past. digging up his past. <laughs> and but you know, you say it like that, and it's like, oh god, that's really kind of hackneyed. Yeah, it's really on the nose, but I don't think it is because the the there aren't large tracks of the book where he's like staring at the dig site being like oh man they're digging up the past and god that's just like what i'm doing so it's it's there but she doesn't i mean if you ignore how sort of obvious it is in the first place she doesn't take pains to make it more obvious no 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 okay but she does kind of she spends much more time with rob and his attempts to recover his own memory um he sees uh some photo of another murdered girl and it kind of triggers something in him and there's this excuse me paragraph where he is uh talking about the potential of memory to to unpack a whole bunch of other things i'm going to try and find it real quick sure um says, losing a chunk of your memory is a tricky thing, a deep sea quake triggering shifts and upheavals too far distant from the epicenter to be easily predictable. From that day on, any nagging little half-remembered thing shimmers with a bright aura of hypnotic, terrifying potential. This could be trivia, or it could be the big one that blows your life and your mind wide open. Um, over the years, like someone living on a fault line, I'd come to trust the equilibrium of the status quo, to believe that if the big one hadn't come by now, then it wasn't coming. 
But since we caught the Katie Devlin case, little rumbles and tremors had been building ominously, and I was no longer anything like sure. Uh, I just, as it is a very dramatized and very specific memory loss, but I think that that is kind of speaking to a a larger experience, right? Of, um, and I don't know if we've talked about this on, on the show, but it was something I experienced when we were at uh, our college reunion, like almost a year ago, where like we would talk about events and someone would just say, no, that's not, that's not what happened. <laughs> and that's a weird feeling. It's a really, and then you try to like figure out what parts you do have down and what parts someone disagrees with. Well, it's like, the thing about it is like, we're, we're wired to like stories. Yes. And so sometimes, I mean, especially if one person recounts a story in a way that exaggerates a specific part like that might be the version that gets passed down into memory, even if it's not exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And then if that's the one being passed down, then that, you know, that can further be embellished upon. And so even like, even though at that point we had just been out of school for like five years, like it's just far, it's just far enough in the past. And our glasses are just rose tinted enough that yeah yeah <laughs> that it makes it it makes it easy to forgive those little those little errors i guess well and, and you do that on a, on a day-to-day basis to like either support it takes a lot of effort to correct or adjust your worldview mm-hmm. <laughs> uh on a on a regular basis and so a lot of what we tend to spend our time telling ourselves about our lives is uh confirming what we want mm-hmm. um and i think that a lot that plays out a lot in this book between when rob i will say that it does you are you fighting with your cat right now he's digging in a box he's making noise is he digging up the past of his box <laughs> you jerk not that i know of maybe what did he bury in that box um i don't know the <laughs> I think Rob is kind of naive to assume that he won't get linked to the case that he's working on. And he half admits that. Uh, At one point, he goes down into the evidence locker that has the evidence from his childhood in it. And he, like, looks at his bloody shoes and, like, has a panic attack. It's like, I don't know how you thought you were (laughs) going to get away with this. (laughs) Okay, here's, here's a question. Yeah. Is how do you feel about the amnesiac hero trope? Because I mean, you and I have both played a lot of video games, mm-hmm. and that comes up all the time. Is like the character, like I think it's probably it might be second only to the silent protagonist in like overused video game tropes. Yeah. So like, how how do you feel about that? Sort of, it's almost a cop out where you have this character and you the audience like want there to be some mystery and want there to be some things to find out but you can't have the character know that stuff already and so he or she has to find that out for themselves like i don't know like i feel like i feel like it can be lazy sometimes i yes i feel like it can be lazy the the 
times where I feel it's the most lazy and I wish I could point to one right now is when it doesn't feel like anything's happening to them now. Does that make sense? Like in the present tense of elaborate. I think I know what you mean, but elaborate. So say in this book, I don't think it did not strike me as particularly tropey. Um, It throughout the entire book, Rob is trying to solve a particular murder and whether or not he figures out his, his own crap is almost irrelevant. He hopes it might be relevant, but it's only relevant in so much as it solves this murder that's on his desk and his attempts to use his memory and, and unearth his past, uh, cause problems with the people he actually interacts with in the book. Mm-hmm. So to watch him go through that felt very kind of honest and human and not like a bunch of plot things were happen. Uh, there were very few times when plot things would happen to him that actually related to his past. He would he would eventually he would usually cause bad situations because he was trying to bring his past into it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in general, I feel like it can be lazy if it's just like someone's just going through a thing and then people keep kind of being all Kafka-esque like I would do I knew this thing that you don't Ooh, I'm just gonna is that Kafka-esque if well not the way I said it because I'm not Kafka <laughs> but in that way where people like are perfect like purposefully oblique and because they know something and the main character doesn't know it and they just kind of walk away sure leaving the the main character wondering I don't know. How do you feel about silent protagonists? You hate them, apparently. Not silent I don't, protagonists. I don't hate Amnesia them. I just think it's an. I just think it's an overused thing. I mean, I. I guess I don't know how much it would have changed the story to have him be like investigating something that happened to his friend or his dad or you know whatever. Yeah, because character he, you want to offload that stuff to, like maybe it would have folded out the same way. So so I don't yeah, know. that becomes the that becomes the small town murder trope of choice i suppose right that mm-hmm. this is not a type of story that's new i just i really enjoyed uh the miniseries top of the lake that aired last year or a year or two ago it's the one that elizabeth moss won that award for okay um and that was a like small new zealand town i think that had a, a child go missing and that was another like wasn't an amnesia thing, but a person came back and had to deal with their past and learned a yeah, bunch of right. things about themselves over the course of solving this crime. And I, you have to do that, I think, if you, if, unless you're just doing law of, law and order, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's right. either it's I mean, either monster of the week or it you're telling a story about a human, in which case you have to. Not to say that all the people in law and order are humans. Lizard people. They're all order. monsters of the week. <laughs> Why small towns for these stories? Is it just because you get something out of out of? I, again, I feel like maybe it, it is often used as a shortcut because you have all these characters and you can establish relationships for all of them, and you don't really have to have you don't really have to have many people meet many people or get to know them for the first time. You can just use a couple of paragraphs to describe their relationship and then move on. Yeah. When you put it like that way, it sounds real crappy, but 
I'm sorry I keep I keep trying to like you're... reduce your book down to its base element. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, it's a mystery novel. You're just attacking mysteries, I think. Sure, no, I'm just I'm just like trying to break it down. I'm trying to figure out like you liked this one. Yes. So what makes it different from all the other mystery novels? Maybe it's not different. I don't maybe I just liked it. Can I say that? Yeah, you can say that. That's fine. It's a safe space. Um you can have whatever stupid opinion you want. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we try to be real inclusive and understanding when we record this podcast of other people though stupid not of, idiot not of each other you death metal idiot <laughs> um i have a quote that i want to read as to why i kind of like the narrator in this book he has a pretty good sense of humor okay um but what i will say is that in when done right I think that web of characters who who know each other, yes, it establishes relationships super quickly. It establishes stakes super quickly. But when it's done right, I think it can mislead the reader in all the right ways. Does that make sense? I th- Again, I think so, but please elaborate. So I will say that there... I'm trying. I don't know if I want to use this book as an example because I don't want to give away what happens. But the person that ultimately committed the crime uh, is not the person I thought it was. And I was it the person you least suspected? It was not the person I least <laughs> suspected, but it was certainly a person who had been kind of obfuscated by. Uh, the other webs that had been running between characters and there's what what this book does well i think and for all its frustrations i think the tv show the killing did sort of well was show you that there are plenty of dead ends there's there's one there's a, a third guy that ends up working with cassie and rob on the murder and he goes after the motorway angle um and he barks up a couple trees that turn back nothing even though the book spends like a chapter or two on each of them and it's really it uses that for character development between rob and cassie but it ultimately doesn't affect the solving of the case uh so i think when a story like this kind of uses that web of interconnected characters to point you in different directions to introduce you to different types of people i think that's when it's at its best okay is that a decent argument yeah yeah mr naysayer over there i'm just i'm just breaking it down man Uh, i'm just making you account for your opinions that's fair i suppose that's what this (laughs) kangaroo court of opinions we're in um where's that okay so in the first chapter this is going back to why i like the narrator for the most part um, he's he talks about why he became a murder detective. Like he literally, page seven of the book, the first sentence on the page is, "I became a policeman because I wanted to be a murder detective." <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. Um, you wanted to be on Murder Squad. I get it. Yep. And I think you know, obviously, it's the book does not make any bones about the fact that that's probably because of his childhood. But what are you gonna do? Um. And then there's this, he talks about how he went through school not making any friends and he kind of uh, embraced this lonesome lone wolf mentality. 
He says, I made no friends. To, to me, my, my detachment from the whole process felt involuntary and inevitable, like the side effect of a sedative drug, but the other cops read it as deliberate superciliousness, a studied sneer at their solid rural backgrounds and solid rural ambitions. He's talking about the lower class cops, like the, mm-hmm. the day-to-day guys. He says, possibly it was. I recently found a diary entry from college in which I described my classmates as a herd of mouth-breathing, F-word-tarred yokels who wade around in a miasma of cliché so thick you can practically smell the bacon and cabbage and cow shite and altar candles. Even assuming I was having a bad day, he says, I think this shows a certain lack of respect for cultural differences. Man. He's really putting yokels on blast, I guess. Yeah. Well, and the the interesting thing about Rob, and, and they point this out in the first half of the book as is appropriate, he went away to a British prep school. Okay. And so, so he, he's all hoity toity. He but he's not. He's from this tiny this tiny town, but he has a very different accent from everyone else. Sure. And he kind of he talks about uh it's a little pompous when he talks about it, but he talks about how he kind of has the leading man physique or at least appearance so he gets mistook for this he says he kind of he puts on the uniform and people assume he's a cop just based on looks and how he talks Mm -hmm. and part of the way that he's actually been able to kind of move through his own hometown uh without too many people being like hey are you that kid that went missing is because he doesn't talk like he's from there because um, he like went away and yeah, because they changed and then came back. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he's he's an interesting character. He kind of implodes on himself as the book goes on. There's there's a funny line when he goes to visit his parents, and he drinks a lot of vodka and other liquors in the book. And his dad his dad says, "I don't trust an Irishman who doesn't drink beer," <laughs> which I think is pretty good because he says that. He's like, that implies a, a deeper problem. <laughs> okay. Jeez. That's fair. And I wonder what his problem could be. I don't I mean, know he just, what it would be. He just be. went into the woods and had his friends get murdered in front of him or whatever. Yep. Uh, and not remember it. So one of the other reasons I really like the book is that because of this kind of self-awareness of being a cop and being a detective, Rob takes a lot of pains to not fully explain, but at least point out when he and Cassie are doing a good job or how they're doing a good job. And there are at least three or four different scenes in the book that have to do with interrogations and like having a suspect in a questioning room and whether or not they've been read their rights. That's like a huge plot point of like you have to let, you have to read Miranda rights, right? Right. Um, And they don't call them that here because I was looking this up the whole idea of Miranda rights was established in a 1966 Supreme court case. Um, and the idea of police coercion is, you know, very particular and wasn't only, wasn't until like the beginning of the 20th century that we started being like, Hey, maybe the, maybe a testimony that resulted from you beating someone shouldn't be admitted. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's neat that we have that law on the books and yet, People really, really seem to want to get around it whenever it's possible. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I don't want to drop any <laughs> social commentary on you. So I was kind of looking up uh, police interrogation. I came across something called the Reed Technique, uh, which is this kind of well-worn uh, 
step-by-step process of how to conduct an interrogation. I just kind of want to walk you through it because I think okay. it's neat. One of the All things right. that is, this isn't even part of the technique, but they tell you to put them in a room with two chairs and a table and you have one partner like stand and then you put them in the chair far away from the door but not near enough to any sort of thermostats or light switches so that they it creates a sense of dependency. Like they can't control their own environment. Okay. So you disorient the, the suspect and make them dependent on you. All right. And then, all right. And then you Continue. lay into the read technique. First, you confront them. You tell them what's, what all the facts are. And then this article, which is from How Stuff Works, says, if the suspect starts fidgeting, licking his lips, and or grooming himself, the detective takes these as indicators of deception and knows he's on the right track. <laughs> or else he's a cat. Like, what? <laughs> grooming himself? <laughs> you know, running his hand through his hair, for instance. Okay. So then the interrogator starts theme development, which is uh, looking, you know, start tossing out particular theories as to why the suspect might have committed the crime and this does happen in the book they kind of you almost lead the witness as it were um laying out a story that the suspect can either deny or kind of latch on to right sure and then here's something i didn't really think about but they it's called stopping denials so you you don't let the suspect deny his guilt because it will increase his confidence so you interrupt them and tell them that it's like it's there it, it'll be their turn to talk in a moment but right now they need to listen <laughs> and then you have to overcome objections too um because you have to like if they say well i could never rape someone because my sister was raped and i and i saw how much pain it would cause i wouldn't do that the detective might say something like well that's good that means that you wouldn't have planned this but maybe you did it because you were out of control mm-hmm. right and then you have to uh, provide like alternatives which is did you do it this way or did you do it that way did you kill him for the money or was it a crime of passion and you have to look at whether or not they're licking their lips or fidgeting and see is it which... all like lip licking and fidgeting it sounds like a lot of these questions are those ones that are engineered to get them to accidentally answer like like uh, what's what's a setup is like Oh, did you do it for the money or did you do it for the glory? And they'll say, Oh, no, I didn't do it for either of those. I did it because the voices in my head told me to. Or you're like trying to trap them into giving an answer that they don't want to give you. Yeah, basically. And they, they do kind of say that uh, there are maybe more than a few false confessions that do happen because you kind of trick people into it. Um, but apparently, like, as of the, this article, which is, like, five or six years old, like, 80% of suspects waive their right to silence and waive their right to counsel before being questioned, which just now, seems Now, do they like the say, worst. I waive my right to silence, or do they just don't stop talking? They don't stop talking. Because okay. if I say to you, Andrew, everything from now on will be admissible in court, you might want to stop talking. But if I say that and then just ask you a question and you answer, well, then there we go. We're on the track. We're on I the track to it. court. Uh, one of the other things in this, in this article uh, that I thought was funny was the Just Cause Law Collective warns that if you're arrested with friends, you've got to keep a cool head. Decide beforehand that no one's going to say a word until everyone has a lawyer. 
and remind <laughs> yourself that police will try to play on the natural paranoia that arises when people are separated. Yep. And don't I've seen that on a whole bunch of TV. Don't shows. have your strategy discussion in the back of a police car. <laughs> if the officers stuffed you in and walked away, they're recording you. Really ideally Anytime you go out with any group of people, like part of your preparation should be to discuss your game plan if you get picked up by the feds. Because, you know, you you never know what's going to happen. It's kind of like having a fire escape plan. Like yeah. Being a good parent involves having a fire escape plan. You just like you have everybody have a role. You do a drill like once every couple months. And you're just set. How do you do that drill? Do you have one of your friends play play the detective? And round just, everybody up. You make sure up. you have your story straight. You tell everybody why Daddy has the weird plants in his closet. Wait, like, when are just... when when did you when did this become your family's collective story for when Daddy's growing weed? Nobody said weed. Don't say weed. Don't, Don't put words I, in my mouth. Did you do it for the weed or did you do it for the glory? <laughs> So, I guess is there? I mean, is there anything else? It just—it sounds like this was a pretty straightforward. It's a pretty straightforward mystery book. murder mystery book. Yeah, yeah. I think that it does a decent job handling Rob grappling with his with his memory. I think it also did a pretty admirable job uh, portraying his and Cassie's relationship as unique. Um, they kind of latch onto each other through their own independence and and end up as partners and uh there's like a weird there's like a partners like yeah no partners no hey partner stop it <laughs> god when did the hell um <laughs> i think it does and it does a really good job of kind of portraying a friendship and portraying a professional friendship uh in ways that is pretty believable in this context and and you don't really assume that it's just a romantic thing that's bound to happen you know yeah because i guess in these in these mystery books you often end up with those those boy girl pairings i guess like i keep thinking back to the da vinci code because that might have been the last like mystery book that i read for the show yeah and you have like from the instant these characters meet and the description lingers on like how beautiful each of them is in their own way. Like uh-huh. there's this sense that the author is setting them up to, to uh, seal the deal eventually. So it's, it's interesting to hear that there's, you know, there's a male and a female protagonist in this book and they are not like on a collision course to, you know, it's, I guess, literally a collision course. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I'll also say that for for what the book does wrap up, it also leaves plenty of things kind of open, which is probably why she felt... For the sequel. Yeah, why she felt she could write about one of the other characters. Um, things don't all go well for Rob, even as the, as the case kind of wraps up. Um, yeah, I like it. I think it's a really good book. I'm I'm excited to, at some point, circle around and read the next one because I've heard that's actually even better. And I, okay. I can recognize in retrospect that there are some flaws with this one just in terms of it can wallow a little bit in, in Rob's psyche. And it can also uh, 
like I said, the the final climactic scene with the perpetrator of the crime is a little forced. Okay. It's a little much. But it's set up really well, so I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt in the moment. Okay. All right. I think people should read it. It did not take me very long to read. It's good, probably a good beach book since we're coming up on beach time. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it has to be spring eventually, right? I, I hope so. Whew. All right, so if if you want to recommend a good beach read for us, you can reach us by email at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, we also have Twitter and Facebook accounts up at twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Now, we also know that pod is short for podcast, which is why we put it in our website URL, overduepodcast.com. Some I panicked in the middle. And, you and painted <laughs> yourself into a corner. I was up on that I website. Was get it wrong. <laughs> up on that website, as I'm sure Craig was about to tell you, uh-huh. we have we have iTunes and RSS links that you can use to subscribe to the podcast. And um, if you do that in iTunes in particular, uh, would if you also wanted to rate and review us, we find that really helpful, and that's another good way to give us feedback if you think we're doing something dumb or not dumb or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. Yeah, you can also listen to old episodes. We are so good at this today. You can listen to old episodes. You can uh, click on the Amazon links for some of these books if you want to pick them up uh, in Dead Tree version or e-paperweight version, whatever you want to call it. Whatever. I mean, we get a tiny cut of the money either way, so whatever you want to do is fine. You just go do your thing. Just do what's right for you. Andrew, What do you know what you're going to read next? I do know. I'm going to read To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Stop Lee. Stop it. You have never I've read that I've somehow never read that. Oh my, it's I like just the, got really mad at you. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the it's the... It's a great overdue book because it's it's a classic novel and I've never laid eyes Did on it. Did you think so. you'd read it? No, I just, I've never done it. And I'm really, I mean, you know, spring is coming. Mockingbirds are going to be here. I'm going to need to know how to deal with them. So that's what I'm hoping to get out of it. All right. So and next week, uh, pour yourself a tequila mockingbird and uh, we'll see nice. you on the show. Yeah, and uh, in the meantime, try to be happy. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is oh the other thing the other thing if you if you <laughs> you're just joining us from last week okay so I have I have a story for you that shocked and terrified me 
when I heard about it. Okay. And I'm going to tell it to you. Okay. So Susanna was telling me about, I don't even know in what, con- it was probably something wedding related. Like that's, that's like 50% of our conversations these days. Um, talking about like nail care and like the care of the area surrounding your finger and toenails. And it came up that there is such a thing as a manicure or pedicure where you stick your hands and your feet into some water and a bunch of little fish eat all your dead skin off. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like people were getting ready to use bacteria That's, a while doesn't back. Doesn't that seem dangerous? Like, hey, bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, eat the dead skin, but don't you do anything else? I I'm mean, watching you, bacteria. <laughs> well, you don't use fish. I'm on to you. You don't use like Ebola to eat your to eat your dead skin. I see you Ebola <laughs> eating my nails. I don't think that's. I mean, you don't use fish and bacteria. You pick I'm one. A hundred percent sure that those fish have bacteria. Well, no, but those fish don't have foot eating bacteria. Those fish have fish eating bacteria. Yeah, there is um, what's it called? called a tiny carp known as Gararufa or Dr. Fish. Dr. Fish? Yeah, not not like Dr. Fish, but they're, you know, like Dr. Fish, like a nurse shark. It's not nurse shark. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, my name is Nurse Shark. I brought you'll be in to see Dr. Fish soon. (laughs) Just go into the room. He'll be in in a few minutes. (laughs) So anyway, that was gross, and I'm looking at a picture of fish eating somebody's foot right now. That's I'm gross. That's... Send it, I'm going to send it to you, and oh. you're going to be you're gonna be just as grossed out about it as I am. Oh no! Oh, that's a lot of fish. I know, right? But you don't just want like one or two little fish eating your feet. Like that take forever. 